Hi and welcome. Today I'm talking with Derek Pluto Murray. He's a Gaelic media broadcaster, and I will admit to knowing him prior to the podcast. When my husband Jamie and I went to Scotland, we actually met Derek. So we've known him for a few years and we've kept in touch and we try to talk as often as we can. So this podcast was extra fun. It's always great to meet new people and it's also always great to talk to friends. So I really appreciate Derek coming and talking to us about his topic. As you know, in this podcast, I talk to scholars, students, academics, amateurs, and anybody who's really passionate about their topic. I love learning from them. And you might have noticed not all the topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie. I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. Now I guess we delve into some Scottish history, eh? Today I'm talking with Derek Pluto Murray, and I'm actually really interested in this topic because I don't know much about it. So thank you very much for being here, Derek. An absolute pleasure, Rosie, and uh, that would make two of us. So it's going to be an interesting chat. (laughs) I guess I can ask you, you know, what are you going to talk about today? Today I'm going to extol the virtues of one of the most keenly sought after free fuels that we possess in the Western Isles um, and across the well, across large swathes of Europe, actually called peat. So um, I'm going to be talking to you about my expert field in the peat industry, which probably condensed would have consisted of being on the moor for all of I don't know, maybe maybe 17, 18 years, can back that and told what to do. So I'll try and condense all that into six hours for you. And then you can edit the heart's content. (laughs) I don't think it's going to take that long. I think we'll be good. So you have experience with peat then. So can you talk a bit about your experience? Well, peat, all joking aside, it has been one of the most crucial elements of life on an island, certainly in the Outer Hebrides, because it was free fuel. It wasn't free. It was part of, you know, you you were assigned a, a plot on the moor. When you were allocated land, a croft, you would get an, an assigned peat bank. And um, a peat bank, the irony in that name is it alludes to something of value. And uh, a peat bank was certainly valuable. And they could differ as well, as we'll no doubt talk about. But um, peat here is readily available, uh, certainly in Lewis, where I'm from. You know, Lewis is basically a, a bog, a marshland. And uh, that bog is what we now know as peat. And it's a dark fuel and basically consists of all kinds of decomposed material over millennia. You'll have, you'll have a better, a much better idea of how old it is. Um, but, you know, you can, depending on um, where your peat bank is on the moor, you can you know, come across, occasionally come across uh, fallen trees, you know, and, or trees, you know, that if you're unlucky enough to be to find yourself in a, in a poor peat bank area, you know, you'll have uh, calcus and all that kind of nastiness, which spoils the benefit of your peat bank, you know, because it's obviously going to affect the quality of the peat. 
if it hasn't decomposed properly. So yeah, my own experience would have started being, you know, taken out onto the moor in the back of a tractor and trailer. And our peat banks, I'm going to talk to you about my experiences, Rosie, just because, you know, I'm no expert in the field whatsoever. Uh, I'm an expert in my own life. And, you know, you only called me because, you know, I can talk the hind legs off a donkey. So the tractor and trailer would have taken us out. I'd have been a toddler and literally left to, you know, crawl among the, the moor and the, the peat at different times over the summer months. And then you progress the older you get the more arduous the tasks get from lifting the peat. That would be the first job that I would have, or any kid would have been made to do. It's not a rite of passage, it's just to get on with it. It's a, so you would be made to lift the peat. And then eventually, once you are strong enough as an adolescent or whatever, you would be then given the task of either cutting the peat itself or inevitably, before you progress to the peat, and you were tasked with throwing the peat. and. Um, there's a skill in that as well, but we'll talk about it all. Before eventually uh, being allowed to drive the tractor and then take the peats home. And that's the best job because sitting on a tractor for, you know, half an hour at a time was an absolute doddle while everyone else is breaking their back, filling the other trailer while you're away. So that's basically parts of what I'm going to bore you with. Yeah, I feel like the tractor job is kind of like the cherry on top of the Sunday, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's as close to that cherry as you'll ever get. <laughs> yeah. So let's start maybe with just the beginning. So you have this land that's the decomposed material. And why is it good to burn? What makes it good to burn? It's a fantastic fuel. So there are several layers to the peat. There are different qualities of peat, um, depending on where your peat bank is, depending on the depth of the peat bank. We say we call them foliage in, in Gaelic. If you have a three foliage, you know, if you have three cuts, foliage is a cut. You know, for argument's sake, you'll have three uh, for this example. So your top cut would be the cut that's closest to the heather. It's not going to be quite as dark as your second cut and certainly nowhere near as dark as your third cut. And the third cut is called kiran. The kiran is as it'll break up it'll it'll dry it's it's going to become that becomes really hard but also ironically brittle and that inevitably will become the smooth that's in a bottom of a peat stack and the curran burns at the highest that's got the highest temperature of your three for talking about the three so your top cut the outer one would be called um, the fat tasky uh, which is a peat that would get laid on a fire to keep the fire burning. It's a slower burning peat. And then from that, your good peat is inevitably several peat in, several cuts in from your outer one um, in your first, and then your second row are good. And the third row is, that's your money penny. You know, these are the ones that are gonna get that fire really stoked up properly to, to a high temperature. So it, it was and is a fantastic burning fuel but also it evokes so many memories for so many people as well, just the smell. And the smell of a peat fire is unbeatable. And if you ask anyone that's into their whiskey, a lot of whiskey drinkers are a big fan of the peaty ones. It's that kind of taste. You can actually taste the peat. Uh, whereas for softies, 
like myself. I prefer the ones that aren't too peaty, which is ironic, really, for a, for a chukta. But uh, no, I prefer a Speyside or a, a Camer, Camer whiskey on my throat. Um, so, yeah, to extol the virtues of peat would, you know, would fill, genuinely would fill the, the podcast. But uh, it is it's a fantastic commodity that we're blessed with here. And as a society that was overcrowded and impoverished and at the absolute depths of poverty, it was um, it was almost manna from heaven, you know, for families that were going through horrors, you know, and uh, starvation and everything else. To have access to fuel was basically what would keep them alive, you know, for cooking purposes and also for heat. Absolutely, because in your region, like you said, you don't really have a lot of trees that you can use for fuel. No, because I think that you know, going back, let's have let's have a random guess of, you know, a million years, right? This place almost certainly would have been covered in trees, and that bog, that marsh, you know, that boggy land that we're on, that wet land, was then that's what devoured the trees, and that's what decomposed into becoming the dark stuff, you know, the good stuff. So if you could turn back time, if you could take a slice in time, then I'm sure uh, trees were here. It's a certainty. But nowadays, the only trees you'll find in Lewis and Harris and most of the Western Isles will be around an old estate house or an old estate or in you know, grounds that were maintained by the landed gentry. Certainly nothing that grew wild on the on the moors around here and the peat that's in you know the middle of the island let's say versus the edges of the island do they have differences in burning or composition not really no i don't i, I couldn't say that that they would because um what you do find is obviously that the peat doesn't grow well having said that talking about ness here you know there are peat banks it's at the very north end of lewis uh, there are peat banks closer to the, the cliff edge south of Dell. Ordinarily, when I'm thinking of peat, I'm thinking of the peat, um, the moor that we have access to at the back end of the village, outside the district boundary, um, hidden inland uh, on the island. Because the top end of the island, Ness, where I'm from, is the majority of the area is uh, Machar land, which is very sandy soil and, you know, there's no peat in that Machar area. But there are peat banks closer to the shoreline, south of Dellen, in, in other different parts of the island. But I, I can't say that there's any uh, difference in the quality of the peat, I would imagine. And this, again, not with any certainty. I would imagine that the peat out in the moor is better, purely because it's not affected as much by the salty atmosphere. But that's a case. So case anyone, put an asterisk in that part of the podcast in case anyone takes me to task you know i'm sure somebody can comment if they know <laughs> oh absolutely. that's asterisk number one of 302 by the way <laughs> <laughs> so i guess we can start with how do we harvest do you have special tools you mentioned a tractor how do you harvest it um so the, the first job involves heading out to the moor out to your assigned peat bank yeah a peat bank would ordinarily look like moor head across the top and then a ditch that comes off the edge of that and the ditch will be dependent on you know how many cuts but for all our examples just now we'll just use the three you can get peat banks that are you know four and five depending on 
depth. Sometimes as low as maybe two or even one cut, you know, depending on what slant your peat bank is on. But for this example, we'll just use three. So your ditch might be three feet, four feet down. Well, so it is a ditch that runs with water away from the peat bank. It's like that's it. Uh, keeps it drained drainage so the first job is called turfing so you would turf the top layer of heather i guess uh, that would be what we call rosekick in gaelic uh, which is like peeling you know if, if you say you're rosekick something uh, you're peeling but basically you're peeling the top layer of the peat bank so it's called rosekick up in this again another asterisk somebody else will call it something else you know somewhere else but we call rose kick. And then once you've you'll cut, let's say maybe a meter, a yard, you know, depending on how much peat you want to cut uh, in from the edge of the peat bank, and then you would cut that into rectangles, the turf, top turf. So you'd slice it along, so you're able then to physically lift that sod that you've got, and then you're tipping that sod into the ditch so that you can then stand on that heather in the ditch or build a wall just to the side to rest peat on. So there are different skills with regards to the placing of the turf that you've turfed um, and also the size of the turfing, how far you go in will dictate how many peat you're going to take out of that, that row in towards the the edge, you know, the new edge that you've created. And then once you've done that, the glanach, which is a cleaning. So this is all done with a, just a spade. So just an ordinary spade. So you're turfing with a spade. So you go out to the mirror with your spade, do your rose turf, it's called a cape, into the ditch. And then with a the spade, then you clean that surface area. So you don't have too many ridges, you know, with all the turf sods that you're throwing in. You want to try and keep it as uniform as you can. There's also a skill in cutting that turf, even from the get-go, because you need to get down deep enough to get to the peat, but not too far to then waste that peat in your sod. But you also don't want to cut it too shallow, or you'll end up with that all that kind of earthy, grassy, you know, it's not just heather that grows, you know, there's different grasses. So you get all that stuff in your first peat, in your first cut of peat. And when turfing's been done badly, you can spot it a mile away in a peat stack. And you can spot it a mile away. I saw it actually last week. Somebody's left their peats out. And it's obviously somebody that hasn't got a clue what they're doing. And also the fact that it's still there, it's now October, but in September, you know, speaks volumes. I would almost say that in commerce that didn't ask for advice. But you never know. Um, but the reality of getting it wrong at any stage will always be prevalent then back at the house when you're about to put your peat into your fire. Uh, so that's the first job is the turfing. And then so Roska's notion clanic. Um, and after you've done that, you could realistically, you could start cutting your peat straight away. But ordinarily, people will head out there and take, you know, the afternoon or the day turfing, depending on how many peat banks you're doing, and then come home and maybe, hopefully, not let it get too wet. If you're in inclement weather, you don't want that exposed peat getting too boggy. So you want to be doing it soon after turfing. 
some people do decide to just turf and then cut straight away. But from my memory, we always preferred to clean it and then come back the next day or the next weekend. Or the weather always seemed a lot better anyway, you know, 30 years ago when I was 30 plus, 40 years ago. And from that, you're ready for the next stage. And the next stage is the crucial part. And that is the booing, the cutting. So for the cutting, I would be interested in knowing if you're cutting big pieces or small pieces. So if you want to detail that a little bit, it'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. The cutting we use up here, uh, we have a tarash, what's called a tarashkith. That's your peat iron. And peat irons differ, you know, sometimes from island to island. But I know that the Irish peat iron is completely different to ours. Our peat iron has a long wooden stem that is cased into a, the, the actual iron part of it. And it has a blade, comes down it and then cuts it along at uh, right angles. That blade is what's called the iron. Above the blade, there'll be a step, usually a triangular-shaped kind of thing that uh, you stand on with your leg to push the iron down. So um, you know what you should do? You should invest in a wee graphic that can pop up on your podcast. You know, like a pop-up thing with photos and things. That'd be nice. It'd be a lot easier than me trying to scribble it in my head and then decipher it through a rambling sentence. Then, so the peat iron looks like a, it's like a, it's like a very small L, you know, being crude. So it's an L-shaped um, with the bottom part of it being very short, very short, maybe a 18 inches, maybe. 18 inches, 20 inches in length. And the first cut, first peat, you know, the top layer of the three, the outer one is the one that's the exposed part of the peat bank. And somebody that knows what they're doing would cut the outer one just that fraction wider than the peat iron. So the peat iron has a set with, you know, and somebody that's good on cutting will always have a uniform size. But if you know what you're doing, the outer one should be maybe an inch and a half, maybe a couple of inches, three inches, just a bit wider, a bit thicker. And then that would be what we call fat tasky. Remember I talked to you earlier about the peat that gets left on top of a fire. It's the one that slow burns. Well, this one is a slow burner because it's got the outer edge that's been exposed. It's not going to be as neat. It's not going to be as sliced on the outside for obvious reasons. But it's also going to be that bit thicker, so it'll last longer. So that's a fat tasky. So the outer slice of the top will be a fat tasky. And that fat tasky then has a crucial role to play in at the house when the peats have been gathered and you build your peat stack. We'll talk about that further along the line. So a peat iron is something that it's a rite of passage if you're cutting peats with your dad, inevitably it was father or your grandfather. And ironically, it was the women that were the ones that were flinging the peat, you know, they're the ones that threw it onto the heather. But that, in my case, it was me, you know. So if you went out with your dad, your dad was always inevitably on the Mutarashkit, on the peat iron. He might let you do the second cut because, you know, it's hard to mess up. And then he'd cut the kera. But the reason behind that as well was because you need a bit of skill when you're coming to the throwing of the peat. So once the peat is sliced, cut, one peat is cut, you know, you tilt back the peat iron, pops out this beautiful, just square piece. And then if you're the one that's throwing, 
you're obviously stood in the ditch on the heather cape and you're then in charge of placing peat. Is it almost like a brick in a sense? It's larger than a brick but smaller than a pillow. A cushion, you know, like a cushion on a couch. It's a square cushion. Um, maybe I'm looking at the cushions I've got over there. It doesn't matter. It's as if that was going to make a difference to what my answer was going to be. It is a square, but it's not It's not a brick. And it's not a block. It's more square than that. But the thickness wouldn't be far off it. Thickness of a block. You know, you could pick it up with one hand. No, no problem. Um, so, yeah. So you were mentioning how the women were in charge of throwing the peat. So what's the technique behind that? So the women or the, or the children or, you know, if you're out in a gang, this is another thing, a huge part of the peat process was the community element of it, where you would have men who were usually free only on a Saturday. We'd go out in gangs and cut each other's peats and they'd do it over a course of, you know, maybe two or three weeks, you know, doing each other's peats as and when they could, you know, after work, late at night, in the evenings or certainly on a Saturday, never on a Sunday, as you know. And the woman, the, the, the throwing part, although I'm saying it's a woman's job, that's my memory of it, you know, that part was crucial because your first peat was going to be the biggest one and that was the one that could take being thrown the furthest. So your first peat would have to get thrown out because you're standing below the man that's on the peat iron, you're on the inside, what we call the inside of the peat bank, standing in the ditch, you'd be throwing usually out to your left-hand side and throwing out maybe, I'm thinking feet. You need to be throwing it out, certainly 12, 15 feet. And then from there, the next peat would join in behind it. And the skill was in throwing the first one out first, next one in right up beside it, next one in right beside it, right beside it, right beside it. And that way you knew that uh, you had space, you know, between your furthest one out, cutting all the way in. And then your second cut, you know, once you've taken the top tier off, you carry on all the way down, taking off that first cut in the peat bank. And then you come back, and then you take the second peat all the way along. When you're cutting the second one, that usually was thrown onto the top. Well, this is what we did, but you could do it vice versa. Um, and then you wouldn't have to throw it as far because you could build a, a garden wall you know, where they were stacked on top of each other, just edge to edge. So it would sit uniformly along the top. And then your third cut would sit on top of that or on the very inside of the ditch. So your keran, which is the last cut, the darkest one, would sit closest because it was the one that was darkest and probably you know the most the wettest but because of that, you couldn't throw it, i.e., for two reasons. It was very, very wet and heavy, but also any kind of damage you inflict on that dark peat, you know, it's going to dry very, very quickly. It's going to become brittle. And uh, then once it dries, it breaks up, and then you end up with a keran, you know, just like the smaller bits of peat. And you don't want too many keran because then you don't want it all going back in, in bags or in what would become a smear. And that was like almost like a crumb, you know, like a top of an apple crumble, that kind of stuff that um, sits at the bottom of a peat, peat stack. Uh, that's a smear. 
you want like a dense material so that it burns hot, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And inevitably it will break down, but you want to give it every chance not to break down too small. So after that, you have the joy of driving the tractor or the wheelbarrow home? No. No? After the, the joys of breaking your back, <laughs> cutting peat, throwing peat, you, know, you leave it out there for, let's say, you've got a really nice spring, summer, um, maybe four weeks, six weeks. So then you go from buoying the cutting to the tokar. And the, the tokar is the lifting. So you've left all these peat facing skyward, drying, baking in the tropical 12 degree heat, <laughs> 12 degree Celsius. <laughs> Although sometimes it could be Fahrenheit in this place. That exposed side has dried in that period. So once that side has dried, what you want to do is go out and lift it. And what we call lifting is literally gathering, lifting two peats that are dry and edge them up together so that they're coming off the heather and coming off the ground and the dry parts then become the shadow side of the peat, exposing the wet side to the elements, to the wind and to the sun. And inevitably, in our case, what we did was uh, brought two together and then put another one on top. Obviously not the dry side facing up on the top one, but the bottom, you know, the wetter half of the peat. So once you've done that, that genuinely is, Rosie, that is the worst job on the planet and the worst job in living memory for anyone that's been in the peats because it's the first job that as a kid you're sent out to do is to lift because you've got the bendy back, you know, and oh, many's a bad day after a day in the peats lifting, you know, you're in bits and I loathed lifting. I'll cut, turf, whatever, throw, no problem. And then taking home, it's the best feeling in the world. But uh, the lifting is horrendous. And, you know, that always started so many fights in our house. Right, we're going out lifting the peats. <laughs> I think I've pulled my hamstring off. I think I've done my shoulder. <laughs> I have homework. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I know I've got a test for to study for something. So, um, yeah, it is genuinely the worst job. And inevitably, that was also left to the woman. Historically, it was always left to the woman and the children. A lot of the time, crofters, in the summer months, the women would take the animals from the black houses and head out to the moors, to the shillings, to the Aries. They would be there and that was part of their job was to lift the peats. And then after you've left them to bake, because now we're into July, you know, and the weather's really getting good, you know, we're up into the high teens. And it's probably going to be another four weeks after that before it's ready for taking home. Some people would collect it, gather it, you know, in the peat bank. But we never did because it's like double handling, you know. It just made no sense. I see another uh, drive past you know, other peat banks, other peat areas across the island. And I think some people genuinely do do that. But I think part of the reason that they do that is maybe the access for the tractor. You know, for collecting wasn't great. We were blessed with two, my grandparents and our own peats were um, good peat areas. So the tractor was was never, I was going to say never a problem, but inevitably there was always a, there was one tractor getting bogged. And especially my granny Bobby's, my granny Harbost's uh, peats. You know, many's, a, many's as an expletive was spent out there 
tanks, you know, screaming at a tractor tire. And you'd go out, you'd, you always knew when it was time for taking the peats home, because you'd see all the tractors in the village would be double-wheeled, you know. <laughs> That's it. What's it doing? Uh, double wheels on. Uh, going out to get the pizza. Yeah, yeah. Spread the weight and uh, give you half a chance of getting through and taking it home. Uh, so the taking home of the pizza is exquisite. It's the most euphoric moment. I'm wondering, with the lovely weather in Scotland, which you've alluded to, and rain, how does that affect the drying times? Do you really have to time your peat cutting and your peat drying? Yeah, yeah, you do. You want to try and cut your peats. As long as you haven't had a, or haven't in the middle of a horrendous spring, you want to be trying to cut them in April. Inevitably, that was the Easter holidays, you know. That was the joy of the Easter holidays. Some people cut them sooner than that, but now, especially nowadays, you know, might have got away with it 40 years ago, but uh, or 50 years ago, but, but now our spring is horrendously wet. Our winters are wet. So if you're cutting, and leaving it on a wet ground and exposed for a length of time in wet circumstances, you're going to have a poor peat, you know, poor quality, because it does affect it because your handling of it. If you're handling it a wet peat, you're going to leave finger marks and all these indentations are just giving an, an opportunity for it to break up. So you want to cut it in April uh, time, lift it in May, sometimes into June and get it home in July. Uh, August, so even, sometimes even early part of September, depending on how bad the weather's been. But uh, yeah, the skill is in uh, making sure that when you go out to lift them, you know, that that one side is exposed, that has been exposed is dry, and then give it the chance to complete its process out in the mirror before you think about taking it home. It definitely sounds like a game of patience. <laughs> yeah, well, nothing's going to happen quickly, and it is a lot of graft. Um, and that's why it's certainly in the last 20, 25 year practice almost disappeared. You know, there's a lot of people that didn't cut peat at all. A lot of houses now are fueled on oil or gas. But with, with the oil prices going the way they were going the last number of years, you've seen more and more people going back out and using their peat bags, which is good. I think it's, I think it's vital, you know, vitally important because it's part of our culture. But then inevitably, what comes with that is people that uh, have a annulus, which that's it's um, the English translation of that is ignorance, which isn't which isn't right. It's an annulus. Yolus is uh, when you're used to something, you know, when you have the experience. So it's a lack of experience is annulus. Um, so the annulus is um, when people think that they know how to do it better and inevitably make an absolute car crash of it. So you do see some horror stories and see some horror peat banks because another part of the skill of uh, the cutting element of it is leaving it the wall once you cut against the last edge of the you know that area you've cleaned into the the edge of what's going to be next year's edge of the peat bank you want to leave that uniform and clean you know so that you don't have big chunks so you want to slice it nice like a cake you know you want to slice it nice you don't cover it like for the next year. You just leave it to dry. No, you need to leave it exposed to the elements because we're not, we're not that bothered about leaving, you know, being being too precious with it. It's not it's not that kind of commodity. But uh, the advent of people going back to the moor to cut is good. But there was also the technology that came along called the sausage peat. And sausage peat 
uh, was basically a, a machine that was added to the back of a tractor and a couple of people had a, that element of a business, small business where they would go out onto the moor. And it's basically, basically just a, a big chain or a spike that goes into the ground, cuts through the heather and then throws out this sausage, which is a one-piped peat. And it was, you know, against everything that anyone wanted to see on the moor. But, um, and also, it was very damaging to the ground itself because you were leaving huge trenches, deep trenches, that would then grow over and were, you know, damaging livestock that were grazing on the moor, you know, over the summer months. Um, or over winter even, you know, cattle out in the moor or wild deer, all of that, that we don't hear of, you know. But what that also did was it encourages then the water, uh, the water table to gather around that. So any area that was cut with machine cuts uh, for the sausage peats would then uh, create a kind of small loch area. And uh, that would then, once it did eventually drain away, what it's done is it's pushed the water table up and then you get all this kind of smear coming across and killing the habitat. So you've got a blanket of black in the middle of this moor, you know, and every other peat bank looks great, but then somebody will have paid somebody to go and harvest their peat using the machine. And uh, that for me is a travesty. And it's something that still happens. And it's something that I personally am against but it's allowed to happen. There were reasons for that because there was a, the aging uh, population literally couldn't find people that could go out and cut their peat, you know, because people don't, it's a lot of work. And if you're paying people, which they did, you know, they'd pay cash to guys to go out and cut their peat, you know, they're paying um, so a lot of money, not a fortune, but a lot of money to them. So it made better sense for them to spend that cash on, fraction of that cash on getting the machine to cut it up. For, but I don't, like I say, I don't agree with it. I uh, get off that soapbox because, you know, it's not a very endearing quality. But uh, yeah, so that's the two ways you can harvest the peat. I was going to say manufacture. Um, if we can manufacture peat, I wouldn't be talking to you. You're lying on a beach in Barbados somewhere. <laughs> Because that's the other thing, you can't commercially, it's not a commercial entity, you know, you don't, you're not allowed to sell it, you know, it's all protected now anyway, all the, the moor out here is protected. So can you sell it to your neighbour or do you just give it as a gift? No, if you're off your head, you give it as a gift because you've worked hard for it. Some people would, my dad, I don't know how many peats we went to and cut as a favour for other families. Mine was a unit, you know, and he could race through a peat bank and... Um, but inevitably, nothing was for nothing. You know, you always got something. It would uh, manifest itself as a half a sheep in a freezer over the winter or something like that, you know, or a bit of salmon or something, you know, and inevitably appear at a later date. So it was a good deed for a good deed. And then supposedly only the, the last part we haven't talked about was the, the taking home the peats. Yes, you said that was the best part, right? <laughs> Because what happened was you'd have the gang, and I eat everyone all hands to the deck, you know, and the grannies would come out, your mothers and your sisters and your brothers and the whole thing, the whole shebang, your neighbours. You know, we'd try and go out collecting to take the home peats home with at least two tractors um, because the distance 
from the peat bank into the house meant that, you know, it's too far, you know, to sit waiting on the tractor coming back, you know, so you'd want to sometimes even three. And I've been in peats that I've had four tractors because they were out the scarce road and going in right up to Yorubi, you know, so it's a long time. So that gang would be flat out. And back in that day, when, you know, even as a teenager, so we're not going back that long, you know, 30 years ago, I remember my granny lighting a fire on the moor, you know, on, next to the peat bank and um, having the kettle on that, you know, taking out all the sandwiches, taking out all the baking, all of that. We'd be over there gathering it for taking home. So the tractor, the trailer would get filled up. And then part of the job in filling the trailer was putting in the stake. And the stake was the edge, the outer edge of the, the trailer load. You'd curve the load into the center to protect it and stop it from falling out. You know, you're not stacking it up. It's not like a game of Jenga on the back <laughs> of the trailer. You know, it's got to... It's got to have a, a kind of dome structure to protect the load coming over the moor and in the peat road, you know, which is like a bone shaker anyway. And so while the tractor was away, you know, they'd be either loading the other trailer with the other tractor or, you know, having a cup of tea and having that community element. And when you were taking it home, I remember vividly, you know, Saturdays were the days for taking home the peats. And you'd be in the on the moor and you'd be taking your peats home and the neighbours would be in the next peat bank or, you know, friends from down the road would be across the other side of the peat road, you know. So real, you know, community time was uh, was uh, taking home the peats. I can almost imagine kids running back and forth, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there'd be loads of games of hide and seek and then inevitably hiding from actually doing any and uh but yeah there was loads of that lots of lots of laughter lots of hilarity and undoubtedly all the characters in the village villages you know in the district would be out in the moor there'd be a dram going you know there'd be a half bottle somewhere in the peat bank and you know the crack was always good and if you didn't have that food element out on the moor itself then you had the granny back at the house making a huge feast for everyone for when they came back home and the feast wouldn't be you know, we're not talking lobster and sirloin steaks here. You know, we're talking a big pressure soup of, you know, whatever, scotch broth or a, a mutton soup and then the mutton potatoes. Uh, so everyone would get a feed and a dram uh, after the work was done once you came back home, except for the kids, obviously, who weren't allowed. The, the smell was intoxicating enough. So the grannies would be cooking back at the house, but the grannies were also at the house for a reason, and that was to construct peat stack. In my memory, it was my granny Bobby that did all the, the peat, building the peat stacks. And then my mum did it at her own house. It was identifying the, the single peat, you know, that big, thick one, the fat tasky I was talking about. And that became the outer wall of the peat stack. So again, just, you know, skill at every key element of the process. So did you have a building like a barn or something to keep that in? So some people did have barns and keep the peat in. That was the easiest way to do it. And we eventually had one part of the barn that we did do that in. The only thing that we didn't like about that was you couldn't tip the trailer into the barn, you know. So you had to double handle the peat, you know, from putting it in the trailer out in the moor 
you then have to take it out of the trailer and manually throw it back into the barn. So there was that element in the house, but the majority would have kept the peat behind the house in a peat stack and build the long rectangular shape that you'd be most common to see would be that shape. There are some peat stacks that are built like a dome, like a broch, and they're not recognisable up in this. But there was also there's still a guy up in this that puts a herringbone shape into his in the outer wall of the peat stack, so it looks absolutely phenomenal. You know, it's showing off. It's really nice. Is everything interlocked inside and outside? How is it built? So the outer wall is built with the thickest peat, and the skill is identifying that, and then it's laid against each other from the bottom and then you're laying on top of that so that they build almost like one third onto the two thirds of the other one and so on till you build a very slight angle you know it's not it's not vertical it's just a very slight angle so that again it comes uh, the higher it goes it's coming in towards that kind of domed shape at the very top then so once that outer wall is built it's like again the fat shea, the shea that you did on the tractor. Um, once that shape and structure starts to take place, you can then tip the rest inside the protection of that outer wall. And that outer wall, if it's done properly, you're exposing the side that had the element, you know, the first cut of the first row of peat. That's the one that's been exposed for a year. So that's the one that's got the toughest side of it. So you'll expose that side if you can. And then that means that you're only ever going to get one side of that peat. It's going to get abused by the weather. You know, it's getting absolutely horsed by driving rain, wind, gales, severe gales, snow. But it's only one side of that peat. And it's uh, the least, the smallest side, you know, the surface area of that peat that's getting exposed. So the majority of that peat is all the integrity of that peat. It's always going to be half decent. You know, it might go in as far as half the peat, you know, with regards to its soddenness, you know, but everything on the inside of it is going to be protected. And peat stacks can be anything from 8 feet, 12 feet, some 15 feet wide, you know, so it's a big area, depending on how much peat you've cut. And then peat stack itself would be as long as you've got, you know. The reason we had large peat stacks down at my granny's was the, the house was originally the bakery in this and that's what they used to fuel the ovens was the, the peat so they had large peat banks out in the moor and then large peat stacks behind the bakery behind the house so that's my memory that's what i equate a peat stack to be but you know be, different people have different practices so you also mentioned that you had different types of peat with let's say the example of the three cuts and they burn differently yeah could you did you place them in a specific way in that dome shape the first one was always you tried to get that one to be the outer wall of the peat stack and then the second and the third you know didn't really matter because the last loads that come from the peat on the moor you know from the peat bank area uh, the last load was always going to be the kera you know the last cut the deepest cut of peat you would um, put that one into plastic bags you know old at sheep feed bags, you know, you'd keep the plastic bags and then fill that up and then you'd take the bags home and you'd either tip your caran into the centre part of your peat stack, you know, down the middle bit 
before you then close the door. Or you would just stack them in the barn, you know, your kitchen in the barn. So it was usually your first, second, you know, if you had a four voyage, then you'd have a bigger peat stack again, you know. And your kitchen would be kept in these bags to maintain its integrity if you had a barn to keep dry or protect it into the, the centre part of the, the peat stack. I'm almost imagining that you know about the different types of peat in your peat stack, similar to how somebody using wood would know what kind of wood they're using to burn their fire. Can you take us through how you would build a fire with these different peats? Um, so to start a fire, um, you would go into the, the centre part. You'd look for the kera. You know, that would be inevitable. Everyone knows that's fire lighters, you know, so we're not going to talk about sticks and matches and anything like that, but you'd have a firelighter. You'd only use a very small amount of firelight. Um, you'd build, uh, if you had old papers or whatever, or kindling. Uh, kindling's now so easily, readily available. You'd use kindling. Starting a fire, but if you're building a peat fire, you'd started using the care on the, the, the driest and darkest. It's going to burn the quickest. It's going to burn at the highest temperature. It's going to start you off. And then from that, you could then stack it, your second cut and your, your third cut if you had four or whatever. Use the inverted commas browner part of the peat. And then if you're going out or you want to leave, you know, leaving fire to just burn, you don't have to be going out. You just leave the fire to burn slowly throughout the, ho- the house and just keep a, a gentle heat. You would use the thicker or the heavier. It just It just looks like a heavier peat. That's your fat tasky, and that's the one that'll give you the slow burn and maintain the integrity of the fire. Since you're kind of digging through this dome of peat, are you closing up the gaps as you go? No. So you're open at one end and you just keep moving in. So one end is always going to be open, um, but you're trying to keep the outer wall to protect as, as much as you can. So you keep the outer wall but you're taking from maybe two or three feet from behind that. So there's that outer wall is still there. And that was another skill in facing your peat stack away from the prevailing wind, you know. So you would open your peat stack at the point, you know, it's away from the westerly. Because here, you know, you'd be facing inland inevitably. And yeah, so that was another part of the, the process. Well, I mean, that kind of covers it all from the harvesting to the cutting to the stacking to the burning of the peat. So I really appreciate you going through all those steps with us with your experience. Thank you very much. You're very, very welcome, Rosie, any time at all. If you need somebody to chant about anything, I'll pretend to be an expert on anything at all. It's a pleasure. So I enjoyed it because it does, it, it provokes lovely memories, you know. And it's the usual rose-tinted glasses, you know, it wasn't really that bad, but it was, it was horrendous. <laughs> Nobody liked it, you know, it's just a, it's just a hellish chore. But um, we all got the benefit of that through the winters and these glorious peat fires. Absolutely. And you had sent a fun fact. Do you mind sharing the fun fact? It's not an island thing where you, you know, I don't, it's a fun fact because I don't tell anyone. I was 15 and I'd attended the Gaelic Drama Summer School down in Benbecula, which was a residential course. Uh, our Gaelic teachers had offered us um, a place at this summer school. Oh, like, summer school? 
it's completely alien to us. It was a, an American thing, you know. I'd never heard of it. And the last thing anyone wanted to do was spend any longer in, in school, summer school, and it sounded horrific. And then he says, oh, it's been Becula. I'm like, oh, and it's a new hostel and a new school and a new theatre, and it's all going to be, you know, kids, adults, and young adults going. And uh, so sign me up, three weeks away. It's fantastic. Get away from taking the peats home. <laughs> and uh, or lifting the peats, it was even better. So the, um, I was there. In 1989, and they had a Brighton residence. Lovely guy, Tom Callum, and uh, he was an older gentleman. And he helped us write our play. You know, we did a kind of work in progress kind of theatre classes through the summer, and I, I really enjoyed the writing and scripting. And uh, he says, well, "You're pretty good at it, and I'd like to encourage you to keep writing." And it was thanks to him that uh, he actually sent through the Gallic Arts Project, Prussian and Yali, um, sent me some information on a competition that the Scottish Youth Theatre were running. And uh, it was for a play, short play. And I sent mine in. I'd written a play about uh, McIntronich. McIntronich is a serial killer on the Isle of Lewis. I can see you smirking and laughing there, but you're going to, you honestly, I can see you're going to ask me one day, tell me all about, tell us all about McIntronich. So this guy, this guy went around uh, haunting and killing on Lewis, and uh, it was a joy to work on. And uh, I got uh, some stewardship from Tom Callum, and lo and behold, Scottish Youth Theatre then awarded me the Young Playwright of the Year on the back of it, in 1989, and it was taken to the national. Uh, went forward, sorry, the nationals, and missed out being showcased in London and the Scottish Youth Theatre were gutted and that was it. I know scribble sketches and do different things but uh, I'd like to get back into my writing uh, once I get time and disengage the mouth because the, the mouth and tongue are in full tilt all the time. Talking to myself in a cupboard has not done me any favours Rosie you know. This is the last time you'll ever ask me to do anything. <laughs> That's a long time ago now but it, it, it is. It's nice. I was laughing a little bit because I can almost imagine this young boy just fascinated by this terrible person terrorizing the island. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what he did. And uh, when you come back over, I'm going to show you Macintronich's cave. You have Macintronich. It's in the castle grounds and dismembered bodies and uh, stories on the moor and the ceilings and yeah. It makes for good ghost and haunting stories. It certainly does. And it made for a good play. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I ask this of pretty much everybody. If you had a time machine, because this is a history podcast, you had a time machine and you could come back safely. Is there somebody you want to meet, somewhere you want to go, an event you want to be even observing or partaking in? Oh, man, that is such a good question. And I've listened to your podcasts and I never even thought of thinking of one for myself. I think oh, I would love to spend more time with my granddad. You know, he's left us 20 years, you know, and, but I, I loved, he was my hero, you know, and he's still my hero. And I loved learning from him, growing up with him and learning, getting the crack with him. He was a funny, funny man, you know, and, um, and I loved to have got to know him 
more and more, you know. And so some time spent with him would have been an absolute, some more time spent with him would have been an absolute joy. If you're looking at proper figures in history, then recent history, I'd like to have gone to the European Cup final when Celtic won in Lisbon in 1967. That would have been amazing. Or if you're going to go back, further back than that, I'd love to have been around, but in a position where I was wealthy around the time of uh, when the Baroque, the Carlo Dunchalovic was occupied, or even around when Chapel of the Wake up in Yorubi was built, you know, and you know, the Christianity had come to the islands for the first time, around the time of the clans. You know, I'd, like, I'd love to have been a clan chief. Oh, man, can you imagine? That would have been just absolutely fantastic. Rather than some pleb sitting in a overcrowded black house in the horrors of poverty, you know, to be a clan chief and looked after, that would have been the absolute bomb. So, yeah, round up it. I've answered, I've answered you four times, three or four times, yeah, and I still haven't made a decision that any any one of these, you know, one of these days somebody's going to invent a time machine and then they're going to come across a wee podcast where they go, whatever happened to that time machine? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that those are all really good options. It's very much a, a range, you know, family. Yeah. And then clan leader. <laughs> yeah, with a good dollop of football right in the middle of it and the, the finest night in Celtic history. <laughs> Absolutely. That kind of covers all your bases. <laughs> That's it. Stereotypical me. <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on the podcast and talking about the Pete and sharing your fun fact and your time machine dreams. <laughs> been an absolute joy Rosie absolute pleasure anytime absolutely I'm so happy you were able to come on the podcast and honestly unless you live in the climate we don't really think about peak cutting and what it meant for communities so I really appreciate you sharing all of your experiences there are no book recommendations, but make sure to check out the blog post. I will be adding some pictures, although unfortunately, I do not have an animation as Derek suggested. Maybe if somebody has one, they can help me out here. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at HistoryA, the website, HistoryA.com. And also, if you have some time to rate this podcast, I would really appreciate your effort. It helps people find me, and that's always a great thing. I love meeting new people. I would like to take the time to thank my husband, Jamie, our brood of kids, our family, our friends, the teachers who have helped me along the way. Without you, I would not be adventuring through history. Un grand merci.